Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosick. It's me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor David Forbes, who's the Director of Phoenix Australia, and he's the Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne, and is an international expert in post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, as we know it. And uh, I'm chatting with uh, Professor David Forbes uh, in relation to an important event that's coming up uh, sponsored by Phoenix Australia next week. But firstly, welcome to Viewpoints, uh, Professor David Forbes. Thank you very much, Henry. Thank you for having me. Um, our pleasure. Director of Phoenix Australia and Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. Tell us a bit about those in any way, in any order that you choose, David. Look, thank you very much, Henry. So Phoenix Australia, we're kind of a national centre of excellence in post-traumatic mental health. We're we're uh, independent, not for profit, but affiliated with the Department of Psychiatry at Melbourne University, um, and we we really try. Our mission of our organisation is really to improve outcomes for for all Australians impacted by trauma, whether through the community, um, whether as part of their work or kind of individuals as kind of experience events in their day to day lives. And we do so through a range of mechanisms. We we've got an arm that focuses on research, which is trying to better understand PTSD and impacts of trauma and improved treatments. Um, also around a policy and practice arm, really, which looks to work with agencies and government to align them, to move them to alignment with kind of doing the best that we can do, which is kind of alignment with best practice interventions and training up providers to be able to provide best practice treatments and also providing a clinical service of our own in relation to testing new models of care and developing underneath all of that Australia's national guidelines for the prevention and treatment of PTSD, which is kind of the benchmark that we operate off in all the work that we do. Mm. Now, as a um, clinical psychologist, uh, your interest in PTSD, uh, what was the beginning and background of that? Uh, well, look, interestingly, I was um, working um, in the ANZ Bank um, many, many years ago. And, uh, of course, in, back in those days, bank hold-ups were not an uncommon event. And I was uh, working in the bank and was kind of aware of the debriefers that would come in and uh, kind of psychologists would come in to support people. And I would see the impact of these events on the staff involved. And I could see the, the clinicians come in and support them. And kind of that drove my decision to actually go back and do my clinical training to pursue the area of traumatic stress, quite specifically, really, because I kind of got to see it firsthand on the ground. That's amazing. Now, PTSD is one of the most common, no, this surprised me, mental health conditions in Australia after depression, which means uh, that any one time is over a million Australians have PTSD. A lot of people wouldn't even think they had PTSD, I would guess. Well, I think that that's right. It's probably one of the most under-recognised uh, conditions um, out there in, in the area of mental health. You know, part of the reason for that was it didn't become a kind of a recognised condition until about 1980. So in terms of you know, public awareness, we know about depression, we know about anxiety, we know about other kinds of mental health problems. But the area, the issue of PTSD really didn't take shape until kind of more, more recent history, really, in terms of mental health, the mental health area. And I think also with PTSD, where people do are aware of it, they... Think of it more in the context of, for example, war veteran survivors or disaster survivors. 
and don't necessarily recognise the kind of the breadth of things that occur in our lives as part of as part of being part of the human race and living in the societies we do that are potentially traumatic events, things like severe, you know, threatening motor vehicle accidents, assault, sexual assault, family violence, um, and all kinds of events uh, that we can experience in our daily lives that we kind of meet the career criteria for trauma. And the result is is what you've said is absolutely right, which is it's the second most common mental health condition in the country next to depression, about 4%, which mean over a million Australians in any given year are experiencing PTSD, many of whom may not be aware of that. They know they're struggling after an event that they've been through, but they might not necessarily recognise that that's PTSD. Mm. Now, Monday the 27th of uh, June's coming up. And this is a special day. Uh, Phoenix uh, Australia is celebrating this day, I guess, or Awareness Day. Um, Tell us a bit about that. Yes, so PTSD Awareness Day, and it's really been instituted for this very reason, recognising how common PTSD is. And it's the the National PTSD Awareness Day, but it's also celebrated internationally to try and improve the kind of recognition of PTSD. So it was instituted a number of years ago to give people the opportunity to talk about PTSD, raise it to the public awareness and kind of help not only the community, but also health practitioners be more more aware of it, know what to look out for so people can potentially then have the chance to take action in terms of improving some of the difficulties they're experiencing and starting to reclaim their lives after, after the experience of PTSD, which one of the big impacts is it really can eat away and detract from almost almost all of your areas of your life. It not only causes a great deal of distress for the person, it interferes in their social relationships, interferes in their work functions, interferes in their ability to maintain intimate relationships often. It can really impact on parenting. It can make a big difference to people's lives and reduce the kind of things that people do out in the world as well. So really the aim of this day is to get people to, to be more aware of it um, so they can more identify it within themselves or in family and friends, and for health practitioners to be more aware of it also so we can actually start to turn the tide on improving the outcomes for people with PTSD, recognise it earlier and then intervene earlier. Now, I guess the $64 million question, and you would have been asked this many times, and this perhaps comes from my previous question, David, is um, how do you recognise the difference between PTSD and uh, other conditions such as, let's say, depression? Mm. Look, it's a really good question, Henry. And um, one is that there's a clear event that's triggered it. And that event is an event that kind of, has threatened the person's life or they've perceived that it's threatened their life or their physical integrity, like some come harm coming to them, them or their body. Um, or they've observed that happen to somebody else. So, for example, coming into the aftermath and witnessing the aftermath of a very severe motor vehicle accident and seeing the consequences, for example. So it doesn't need to be you. You can see it, and that's also is a kind of traumatic experience. So in terms of recognising it, you know, as different from depression, it shares some of the features of depression where people can feel very down. People with PTSD can feel very down in their mood as well, feel anxious. The things that are different about it, uh, where the memory of the event keeps coming back, where what happened comes back either in terms of just spontaneously coming to mind, people are doing things and suddenly the memory pops back into their head or they have nightmares about it so they kind of relive it at night in their dreams or when they're seeing something out in the world that reminds them of it, it, it results in a big flash of that memory. 
And the difference is it's not like thinking about the event like we would do more broadly or even in depression where people might go over the event in their minds. This comes into the person's mind involuntarily. It jumps into their mind. And when it does, it feels like it's happening in that moment or just yesterday and that it doesn't stop feeling fresh and new. And from that perspective, the person then can often try and push the thought or memory out of their mind because it's very distressing and you get this oscillation between these memories jumping in, feeling very distressing, feeling very present, and then trying to push it away. And then we get the oscillation between those. And in the background, being very keyed up on edge, our bodies are trained from an evolutionary perspective when we've been through an event that's threatened our life, our body's ready for another. So the person often feels very keyed up, very on edge, and very vigilant for, for threat and looking around and being very sensitive to things being different around them. So that looks and feels very different to depression when we get that kind of presentation, which is what we see in PTSD. Mm, fascinating. David, we need to take a short break. Can you hold the line? Yes, thank you. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gruskell. In the middle of a discussion with uh, Professor David Forbes, the Director of Phoenix Australia and Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. And we've got uh, Monday the 27th of June coming up rapidly, and that's uh, National Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Awareness Day. Welcome back, David. Thank you very much, Henry. Now, before the break, David, we were talking about identifying and the awareness of PTSD. Um, that's that's just the beginning. <laughs> How do we treat this condition which uh, affects at any one time over a million Australians? And obviously people struggle with it. Indeed. Look, thanks very much, Henry, for that question because I think it's, it really is an important point that, that PTSD, we can treat PTSD, that we do have effective treatments for PTSD. And there's a range of the treatments that are out there, and by and large, the most effective treatment we have are psychological treatments. There's some kind of medication treatments that can be helpful, um, but and it's usually the kind of in the, the branches of the antidepressant medication. But by and large, but the far and away, the strongest, most effective treatment we have are psychological treatments or talking treatments, and they really try to do three things. And there's different variants of these treatments, but they're all underpinned by these three kind of elements. So one is um, helping the person in a collaborative way, in a safe way, gradually kind of process and deal with the memory of the event that's that's caused such distress for them. Now, obviously, this is a difficult thing to do. And because of that, we do so very, very gently and very safely and very collaboratively. Um, where the person starts to work through that event and kind of and deal with it, so that it ends up as a, a always be a, a very difficult memory, but it'll be a memory rather than something that happens in the here and now in their minds. And that kind of going over it a number of times and looking at it in different ways can then take a lot of the heat out of that memory so that it starts to fade. The other part of it is also dealing with the way into persons interpreted that event. You know, one of the, one of the factors that impacts the person's life is what does this event mean about me that I've reacted in this way or that this has happened to me um, or I blame myself for this event and being able to, after having had a better look at the event, often we find that it really changes the way the person sees themselves, their relationships with others in the world they live in and that goes from a very self-blaming or very frightened one moved to something that's, that's much more balanced and much more um, uh, much more forgiving of themselves 
um, and also really importantly in terms of the world itself being kind of less frightened of the world rather than dealing with the world every moment as though this event was going to happen again. And the last bit is dealing with the avoidance. And because what happens after an event is a person starts to avoid the place where it might have happened, or then they'll avoid places that look like that place. They'll avoid places that look like the place that reminds them of the other place. And this thing just expands and expands and takes over their life. So part of the third part of treatment is to get together with the person and help them start to gradually and starting from the easiest thing first, start to do the things that they've avoided since the event and start to reclaim their lives and do the things in their life that they used to get some satisfaction out of, that used to help them feel in control of their lives and in in being able to move on with their lives. And so step by step, we help the person do those things so they get their life back to where they want it to be. So that the trauma-focused cognitive behaviour therapy, it's our best treatment, does these three things. Fascinating. Now, David, the... Um the pandemic's been with us now for two and a half years and uh, that's certainly taken control out of uh, out of many people personal control yes. uh, at least perceptually out of many people's lives what impact has that had on a the creation of trauma PTSD uh, and also relapsing for people who were making progress before the pandemic on uh, PTSD for other factors yeah, look, it's, it, and there's no question that, that COVID has been a major stressor for almost everybody, but it also has been particularly for those who were dealing with other um, more significant psychological issues at the time. And certainly for PTSD, one of the best things we know prevents PTSD or supports PTSD is social connectedness. And of course, COVID hit right at the heart of our ability to see people and connect with people and find ways to be supported by them. So I think that certainly until we found ways of being able to do that in different kinds of ways in the COVID environment for the first number of months, first three to six months, when it was really interrupting our ability to connect and get support from other people, it really did, for those who had PTSD, really, one, interrupted their recovery, but also significantly kind of flared up a lot of the difficulties they were experiencing until we found more creative ways of being able to do that and be able to also deliver treatment remotely, which we know from the evidence is uh, effective to be able to do this via, via telelink and via Zoom and be able to do that by video. We know that the treatments can be delivered remotely in that way, which made a difference also. Mm. And the other issue is the whole range of stresses that people experienced during COVID really did interrupt with recovery as well. And so being able to manage those was really important alongside dealing with direct PTSD treatment. Mm. I work in the field of education, school education, and uh, we spent considerable time over the last couple of years uh, working with children remotely. Uh, certainly, certainly provided us with a lot of challenges, and in many ways, um, we're glad we're not working so remotely mm. with people. From your perspective in your profession, um, how do the two sort of marry up? Um, obviously, remote therapy versus um, direct one-on-one therapy. Uh, is, uh, they work equally or differently? Or uh, look, they, they, they do seem to work equally, but probably important to say that it is very important how you set up the remote, the, the remote therapy where 
it really needs to be negotiated together with the, the person with PTSD about where they're doing it from, that it's a time of day that suits them in relation to the environment around them, and you're providing them with advice about how to how to do it in such a way as they're able to engage without distraction and where there's support's available for them afterwards to try and compensate to some degree for what might happen in your in the clinical environment when the treatment is being delivered, where it is a safe and quiet space there are, where you're connected, where there's other people connecting and there aren't distractions. So really important is to be able to set it up in that way. But certainly from what we've seen clinically and what the evidence tells us is that when we put those very thoughtful processes in place and do so collaboratively, the outcomes of the doing it via telehealth, by video, um, are equivalent. But of course, there's always personal preference and there's many people who prefer face-to-face in the, in the treatment and, and obviously where, where that's able to be delivered and now as things have freed up considerably post-COVID, um, you know, that's often the preference for, for many, if not most, to be able to do that. But for others in terms of their time, their availability, their ability to t- attend for, for treatment regularly um, during an episode of CAMBI, the, uh, the video option actually provides them with a good option to be able to do that and it's their choice to do so. Mm. Time's on the wing, David, but it would be remiss of me not to, to look at this from another angle. You're in the, the profession of caring for people. Um, it's been tough on, on the people in your field, psychiatrists, psychologists and others. Um, it's, uh, the last couple of years have been extraordinary. Um, how's your profession bearing up? Look, it's a, thank you for that acknowledgement as well, Henry. Yeah. Look, there's no question that it's been tough on the mental health professional groups themselves, really. Um, in terms of being able to manage what they're managing in terms of their own lives, but also just the the need that's occurring at the moment. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that uh, the mental health professionals are extremely busy and really struggling at times to meet the demand and need of those who are reaching out to them for care and support. Um, and in that context, being able to form kind of communities of practice or networks amongst the clinicians themselves, peer networks, about how to support each other um, and provide a level of camaraderie across the mental health professionals has been really important to kind of bolster their resilience as well at the same time so that, that the carers can care for others. Mm, yes, if you can't, uh, if you're not able to care for yourselves, it's very hard Indeed. to be adequately caring for others. And I just know from our, our links with them in our profession, it's been, uh, it's been very, very tough on the people in your field and, uh, you know, our, our best wishes to you people. Now, um, in closing, thank you so much for the time, your time and the work you do. And Monday the 27th, how are we celebrating that? Uh, so we'll be, kind of lot, we'll be doing a light-up of a range of buildings across Melbourne and Baltic Bridge. Um, Flinders Street Station will be kind of lighting up in the, in the tail of PTSD. Um, and so we'll be kind of trying to bring it to the attention of the public through the light-up ceremonies as well as to a, a, a broad social media campaign at the same time. Yeah. Um, that was uh, Professor David Forbes, Director of Phoenix Australia and Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne and we're, we're um, showcasing the great work that's being done in the area of dealing with PTSD uh, which is a, a major issue for people in our country and just remember that on when you see everything lighting up on uh, Monday the 27th uh, that this is um, our, our day of uh, acknowledging the post-traumatic mental health of people.
You've been listening to the Viewpoints podcast, hosted by Henry Grossick and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts. 